Recovery Elevator, episode 187. Telling people that, yeah, I'm not drinking was weird for me because I didn't have the toolkit to just say, oh, wow, I have an issue. Will you please help me not drink tonight? Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got John. He's from Helena, Montana. He's been sober for over one year. He's 41 years old, and he's a father of two. John plays music for a living, and I had the pleasure of seeing him play in Bozeman, Montana, live in person. And let me tell you, this guy was glowing while on stage and doing it all sober. Recovery Fest 2019. I caught wind of this event and had to share it with you guys in Pawtucket, Rhode Island on September 29th. There is a sober music festival. These things are going to be popping up more and more across the planet, sober bars, things like that. I had to share this with you guys because it got my gears going. And guess who's headlining? Our very own Macklemore. You can go to recoveryfest2018.com to get tickets. Before we get to our topic today, let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it didn't work. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group, which is capped at 300 members to ensure intimacy. Then you get access to the Cafe RE forum outside of Facebook, which means you don't need a Facebook account to be part of Cafe RE. Both are private and only members can see who is in the groups and what is said. In the forum and Facebook group, you get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For just $19 a month, you too can join the conversation. You can be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups and retreats, participate in book club, movie club, and more. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive this setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. I saw a poem titled The Journey by Mary Oliver shared in the private group Cafe RE, and I had to share it with you guys. And if you'd like to follow along, Mike, who does a fantastic job with the show notes, will include this in the episode 187 show notes. This poem is directly applicable to addiction, so I'm going to read it, and then we're going to break it down. The Journey One day, you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble, and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers, at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. And there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world Determined to do the only thing you could do. Determined to save the only life you could save. Okay, I've got an expensive liberal arts undergraduate degree, so I'm going to put my analysis hat on real quick, and uh, we should be able to hammer this out. The journey doesn't have a set rhyme scheme or a steady dominant meter. This is not a sonnet, limerick, haiku, nor is it a couplet ode, tears, a rima, or an epitaph. Although an assortment of lines that do rhyme, but not frequently enough to suggest a definitive rhyme scheme. So what is it? This poem is a metaphor in the form of a narrative this much I know. Oh, that was fun. To be honest with you, I majored in business and Spanish. I just pulled that out of my ass. But let's keep analyzing. So I do know this poem talks about the most important passage we can ever take in our life, the journey into sobriety. This poem is about necessity for change, leaving one dark situation and finding another one that is more positive. This person, you, who one day finally knew what you had to do. So let's break down some individual parts of this poem. There's an interesting reference to time in this poem with the first two words, one day, which perhaps refers to today, 
the present moment, but it also encapsulates the sum of the struggle, the sum of the suffering that brought us up to the one day, the present moment today, or whenever you finally knew what you had to do. And if you're listening to the Recovery Elevator podcast or other recovery podcasts, I feel that the one day is already behind you. You're not listening to this podcast because I'm funny or because I occasionally drop cool standard poodle facts, but because deep down, you know what you have to do and what needs to happen in your life. I'm simply here to guide you and offer you support in this passage. Okay, now down to line 13. You knew what to do, but the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. The moment we make the decision to begin our journey into sobriety at the core level, our addiction, that inner voice will definitely feel threatened and it's going to start making a compelling case that maybe this isn't the right decision. In fact, this part of us that feels threatened can actually create chemicals in the body to make you feel uncomfortable. The poem continues, the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Yep, when we make that decision to begin this journey, the whole house is going to shake. Get ready. And while the whole house is shaking, there is your five-year-old self, the kid on your screensaver, if you made that change, that's saying, mend my life, we can do this. Even with the foundation of the house shaking at its core and about to topple over, you didn't stop. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers, it was already too late. The wind knew it was too late because you can't stop once this passage has begun. You can't. You can't stop it. I don't know about for you, but after this passage began for me and I went back out and drank, it was never the same because deep down I knew what I had started, I had to finish. So little by little, as you left those voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. There was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own. This is the voice, that white light that has always been inside you, always will be inside you, and always stays the same age. This voice, this light that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper in the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Guys, once this one day arrives, and like I said for most of you who are listening right now, that day has already come. The passage has started. Your body, heart, soul, spirit will fight to become whole again. It's a beautiful thing. My advice is to not fight this process. Thank you, Mary Oliver, for that beautiful poem. Okay, enough out of me. Let's hear from John. John, how are you? Paul, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, and thank you to the Recovery Elevator crew and the community out there for listening to my story. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, John, thanks for joining us. John, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I have been sober for just over a year, and I don't actually know my sober date. Um, I feel underprepared for this exact interview because I could easily go back in my Google calendar and look it up. I know the exact gig where I have my last drink, but other than that, but I just don't remember the exact date. It was summer of last year, so I'm a year in. John, the recovery is not linear. That's something I've learned while doing this podcast, <laughs> that there's no right or wrong way to do this. And I've done interviews in the past where I've asked people that question. It's like, huh, you know what? Let me think on that. And I almost have a tattooed on every part of my body. So that's what's so cool about recovery. There's no right or wrong way to do this. And, and, and listeners, John is in the, basically the staple band of Bozeman, Montana, the staple band of the state of Montana called the Clintons. Since I've been in Bozeman for about eight years now, it's, Hey, the Clintons are playing at this street fair at this event and this event. And we connected in sort of a roundabout way. Uh, a good friend of mine was selling something on Craigslist. You drove down from Helena came down, chatted with him, like, oh, hey, do you know this this, this Paul guy? And, and then you guys talked about sobriety. And also tell me about another connection you had with the Recovery Elevator podcast, a gal I interviewed a long time ago named Jenny. Yeah, well, it's kind of bizarre because I was destined to become one with the Recovery Elevator podcast in my own world. Um, <laughs> my friend Jenny Winokur is a uh, a volunteer for an outfit called the Bozeman Three. And the Bozeman Three is an organization that helps families that have children with cancer. And so the Bozeman Three will help pay travel expenses, hotel expenses, auxiliary expenses, like buying meals and dinners and clothes. Uh, if you're on the road, if you're in Salt Lake and you forgot your toothbrush, you know, I mean, I know that sounds trite, but it is unbelievable. I cannot imagine the stress that those parents go under that have children with cancer. So in my heart, of course, I want to donate to this event and this, this uh, organization. So they do an annual party 
and talking with Jenny and Jenny offered, Hey, can I grab you a beer? And I told her, well, I, I quit drinking and I just got to, you know, not drink. And I had no idea what recovery was. I was, you know, at that point, a year probably into no drinking because going back to your recovery is not linear. I woke up in October, 2016, so hungover, so sick from a gig, drove home, my kids, daddy, daddy, let's wrestle. And I wrestled and, you know, hated my life and just wanted to curl up in the, the fetal position. And anybody who gets terrible hangovers understands exactly what I'm talking about. And nobody does loathing as well as we addicts. Man, we just hate ourselves so much. I hate myself so much for being hungover. My kids deserve the best version of me. And that was a Sunday that I'm hungover from a Saturday gig. And I woke up Monday morning in October 2016. And I sat up in bed and I looked at my wife and I just went, I'm done drinking. Wow. And my wife looked at me and went, yeah, but my wife literally looked at me as she's waking up. She went, oh, okay, whatever. Cool. Good job, babe. <laughs> like, cool, John. <laughs> but in, yeah. But in my head, Paul, that was it. I was done. And a week later, two weeks later, I don't remember the exact details. I just remember she brought home a six-pack of Salmon Fly Rye, you know, which is a great brewery outside of Bozeman in Belgrade, but a great beer. And, of course, I just looked at her and no, I'm done. I can't do this drinking thing anymore. And I'll be honest, Paul, I had no idea what recovery was. I had no idea that there were other people that just said, screw it, I'm done drinking. It took six months of not drinking to then go visit family in Southern California where, yeah, I haven't had a drink in six months. I'll try and have a beer. And I'm telling you, within one beer, all of the everything kicked back in. Everything. After one pint, all I could think about was getting hammered. I couldn't enjoy my in-laws. I couldn't enjoy sunny Southern California that we were visiting them. My children are having fun playing in this little children's area. I couldn't enjoy. All I could think about was getting drunk. All I could think is, how can I get as drunk as possible without puking and just get drunk? And even while I'm talking to people and we're laughing and we're telling jokes and stories, that was what was going through my head. And my brain knew I can't do this anymore. And then a couple more months go by and a friend pulls out a $250 bottle of whiskey at a backyard campfire gig. And I'm like, yeah, dude, pour me a double whiskey. And as soon as I had one drink, it was like, it all kicked back in, Paul. And yeah, any alcoholic knows exactly what I'm talking about. But in my head, I just thought I was like, why do I feel this way? No one else here is, is concentrating on just getting drunk. No one else here just wants to get hammered. They all just want to drink beer and get a buzz and dance and sing. Why am I the only one that all I want to do is get hammered? And it wasn't until talking with Jenny that I listened to uh, Recovery Elevator Podcast that I realized, oh my goodness, so many people just want to get hammered. And then I would reach out to, you know, one of my dear friends from my childhood, Randy, like we were talking earlier. He started opening up about his drinking and I started seeing all the parallels in my life and drinking had really hit him hard. And it was when I realized, dude, I can't do this. I'm just one of those people that if I have one, I can't stop. So screw it. I'm done. And out of pure stubbornness, they call it, you know, you, you've talked about it, willpower. You can get sober on willpower. But now what I'm learning is you can't stay sober on just willpower. You know, I'm a year into no drinking. And I hate to say this. It's really easy not to drink. But God, I just want to be drunk. I don't know if that makes any sense. I, you could literally put a pint in front of me and I would, just, nope, no thanks. I have zero desire, zero. But God, I want to feel drunk. John, <laughs> you that, know? that makes a lot of sense. And we're going to get into that more in this podcast episode. And, and, and John, uh, Jenny was interviewed in episode 86 and Randy was uh, wow. interviewed in episode 129. So it's, it's cool how this small world came together. And like you said, you're destined to be on this podcast. And before we hit record, we talked about some cool stuff. You said recovery is not my identity. And I love what you just said that you have no idea what recovery was. I also went through about 2.5 years of that. We talk about things you like to do and we're going to cover all that stuff. And you're a guy, you're on stage playing music for a living and you're not drinking. Um, but yeah, but before we get any further, just give listeners a little background sure. about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, are you married? And what do you like to do for fun, John? Yeah, that context I think will help paint the picture of my own drinking. So I'm 41 years old. I've been married for 10 years. It'll be 11 years in a month. And so I have no idea when this podcast will air, but if it's later in the fall, I've been married 11 years. Yay me. Nice job. Uh, assuming that marriage, yeah, <laughs> everything looks like it's going to go for another 11 or longer. Let's see. I have two little boys, like I mentioned, um, they're seven and five. So they'll be in kindergarten and second grade this fall. So this fall is going to be a huge chapter of transition in my life. I have been a stay at home dad during the week and then a rock and roll, whatever, you know, rock star on weekends. Um, and it's funny. I don't, I say rock star. Yes. With tongue in cheek, I play music and I love music, but I just have no desire for any of the fake, any of the inauthentic that comes with rock and roll. I want to go, I want to party and you know, party doesn't mean alcohol for me at this Absolutely. point. Party just means sing. Yeah. Sing until I fall over. 
which is a big difference than drinking till you fall over. And for fun, part of my understanding of my own addiction is I have this obsessive part of me. And when the obsession was turned towards alcohol, all I could think of about was drinking. Couldn't wait to start drinking for the day. Couldn't wait to start drinking for a gig. Well, the obsessive part is actually a superpower if properly channeled. Like, for instance, I don't know anybody who played 10 hours of guitar a day, well, other than people like Randy, who just, you play, 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 play. Mm -hmm. And Paul, I promise you, I never looked at my watch and went, oh, I have been playing for five hours. I will play for five more hours, even though my fingers hurt. It's just, <laughs> you know, it's, it's the typical obsessive addict. More, more, mm -hmm. more. And yeah, when I've been able to channel it into things like, you know, weightlifting, I just still lift and it's just more, more, more. Well, now I'm middle age and you just can't do more. You physically can't do it. I mean, you could still do plenty, but not more, more, more. Put another plate on. Let's go, Paul. Let's lift more. <laughs> so I have a tendency, like with the things that I like to do for fun is, yep, let's hike. Cool. Let's go hike 20 miles. Let's go into the Bob Marshall Wilderness. Let's go into Glacier Park. Let's, you know, hike, hike, hike. Yes, rugby. Let's watch as much rugby as we can. I'm a huge rugby fan, you know. And so I'm trying really hard in my life to just moderation. You know, part of my addictive personality is food. You know, my wife looked at me and just said, why can't you just have one slice of pizza? And I looked at her. Oh, God bless you, sweehearts. God bless you. Because like, there's seven more slices. Pizza. <laughs> and thank you. Why can't you just have one beer? Oh, God bless you. Because one beer. Five more beers yeah. in a six pack. <laughs> That's why. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and a bottle of Jameson sitting there in the freezer calling my name. So, yeah, trying to just step back and be at peace with being in moderation. Because guess what? Moderation is still awesome. It's awesome. It's just hard for those of us who want more. Yeah. more John, more. there's a whole package there to talk about towards the tail end of this interview. Mm -hmm. And I cannot wait to unwrap that and dive further into that, but give listeners a little background on your drinking and more specifically towards the tail end of your drinking. Maybe the last couple of years, was there a rock bottom moment, you know, over a year ago that made you quit drinking and, and, and what made you quit drinking? Yeah. And you know, what's funny is that I've never really thought about recovery not being linear. So for instance, I knew way back when that, oh my goodness, this is an issue for me. I, why do I just drink until I'm so drunk I can't see straight? Well, way back um, when, like how long ago? Uh, okay, so my first drink would have been at 19, got nice and drunk at a college party. I never drank growing up. My parents don't drink. I was always told it's in your blood. You know, my family's Irish of Irish descent. I have seen the older generation drink and just slur their words and just be idiots. So I was always leery of it. Well, then when I got in a band at 19 years old, I didn't drink a drop because I was playing in bars and I didn't want to get busted for drinking in bars. I wanted to do music so badly, Paul. And by the time I turned 21, even then I would just nurse a couple beers and everything changed once I moved to Montana and discovered craft beer. Because mm. where I grew up in Wyoming, yeah, everybody drinks Coors and Coors is fine. But then when you discover hoppy beers and Guinness and that was it. All of a sudden, the culinary aspect of it turned on. And now looking back, I have a lot of clarity because I also love to overeat sugar. Well, beer has all this sugar in it. So half the addiction, make no mistake, my, my issue is with the chemical ethanol. I love ethanol. It makes me feel great. The side effects, I cannot live with the side effects anymore. I will not touch it. But half of my love of beer was sugar. Mm -hmm. God, it gives you all this energy. It makes you feel so great. It gives you all this energy to sing. And by the tail end of my drinking, you know, because I would always do dry January. Like I had bartender friends that did dry January. So I always thought it was a good idea. And it always made you feel better after the holidays of just eating all that holiday food. Well, by the end of my drinking, I was drinking in the afternoons. You know, my wife and I had a kid. So I quit drinking for 14 months in 2000. What would that have been? 11. And after 14 months, I'm at a wedding of some people that I love so much. I mean, I love these people so much. I'm, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's surrounded by all these people I love. And I asked myself, why am I not drinking? And Paul, I couldn't answer myself honestly. Well, now I can answer myself honestly. It's because I have an issue with alcohol. I can't stop drinking. It makes me hungover. It turns me into somebody that I don't like. It screws with my digestion. It screwed with my endocrine system, you know, messed up testosterone and estrogen levels, made me moody as shit. However, then at that moment, I didn't have the emotional clarity why I'm not drinking. And the very next day, I ordered a double Jameson at a gig, and that was it. Just right back to drinking for four more years until mm -hmm. October of 16. Yeah. And so part of my issue, and I want to share this with everybody out there because I think people can relate, or at least I'm hoping that the people that can relate will get value from this. I'm an extrovert. When I'm with people, an extrovert introvert doesn't mean you're social or antisocial. It simply means your batteries charge with people. 
or your batteries charge alone. I am an extrovert. When I'm with people, I'm talking, I'm asking questions, I'm hearing stories, I'm, I'm charging. It, it just fills me up. I love it. And I'm so energized by going into a room full of people that I don't know and talking to people and getting to know people. Well, my wife is the exact opposite, Paul. Mm-hmm. She is an introvert. She needs a long time to charge. So my wife is a dentist. She went to graduate school, uh, got her dental degree. We moved back to Montana. And so she all day long is with people and she's very friendly and she's social and she's beautiful and she's wonderful, but she just, it drains her. So when she comes home, she needs alone time to recharge. It is literally that 1950s stereotype of the man comes home, pours a martini or the wife hands the, the husband, the martini and the newspaper and leave your father alone. Kids, daddy's got to read the paper and unwind from work. That is my wife. I mean, it's roles reversed. I could care about gender roles, like do what you want. Like I'm one of those people that if you're happy and you're productive, go be happy. I don't care that a man does this or a woman does that. I don't have that in my head. So I share that only because my wife comes home and she needs alone time. Well, when I got off the road, I stopped touring to start a family. I'm the stay at home dad all day, Paul, and kids are exhausting. And then my wife comes home and I instantly glob onto her because I need for my batteries to recharge. I've been drained all day. Well, my wife has been drained all day and she needs alone time. And so there were so many marital headbutting things that we would do just because I needed her attention, but she needed to be alone. And now I see it with complete clarity with sobriety. So what do I do? I start drinking because guess what? The bottle doesn't shoot you down. The bottle doesn't ignore you. The bottle's not cranky with you. The bottle makes you feel good. The bottle's delicious. You know, like all the stupid cliches. And I started drinking more and more and more out of straight up loneliness. Well, now I see what it is. God, if my wife could just have a couple hours to decompress and then she hangs with the family for a couple hours, she's fine. Mm -hmm. But Paul, I'm telling you, my drinking stemmed from my emotional unintelligence, not being able to understand that she is an individual that needs alone time. Like literally, I've seen her stare at the television and stare at her iPad, gaping. She's not paying attention to anything. She's scrolling through her Facebook feed and I see her eyes drift off to the wall and she's staring at a painting and you can see her brain is recharging. She's not thinking about anything. And then all of a sudden an hour goes by and she turns everything off. Hey kids, how's your day? And she's charged. She's back. And so now, yeah. So now that I know that, of course, I give her all the time in the world and she's awesome and that I can recharge and we our own little happy family. However, when I was in the, the grips of the addiction of alcohol, geez, dude, all I did was just drink a six pack and then have a couple of whiskeys. Well, by the end of it, you know, by summer of 2016, I'm probably drinking a six pack of, you know, craft beer. And oh, then boys. I started doing what I, yep, yep. Well, the 22 ounce Red Hook IPA mm-hmm. is my jam. And I would literally get a couple of those things and I would drink them in the garage over the course of the span of five minutes. And then the glass recycling is out in the garage. So I put the glass bottle in the glass recycling and my wife never does glass recycling. So of course I was playing hide the bottle, you know, and we alcoholics are so good at playing hide the bottle, Paul, where you're just drinking and you're drunk, but nobody knows and you're smiling. And then course i go inside and i'm the one who cooks dinner so i'd crack a beer so of course there's beer on my breath but my wife has no idea that i'm 40 50 60 ounces into drinking because there's only one bottle missing from the six pack oh and what do you know you have a shot of jameson here and a shot of jameson there and the next thing you know you're going to bed every night drunk every night and my guts were getting worse and i don't mean to be crude on the podcast i share this really hoping that somebody can relate to this like my guts were a mess my digestion was a mess and when I really, when it came to the head was when I realized one night I was drunk and I was drinking whiskey and I thought, I'm so drunk. Why am I still drinking? And there was a logical moment, you know, that voice of clarity in your head, dude, what are you doing? And yeah, it was two days after that when I sat up in bed and said, yeah, I'm done. Well, six months later, I had, you know, beers with my brother-in-law and the psychology kicked right back in, which then feeds the self-loathing of why am I like this? Why can't I stop? I hate myself so much. You know, we are so good at negative self-talk. No one is, hates themselves more than addicts. I really believe that. Oh, you know, and listeners, and I'm, got, I'm sure you can relate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and listeners, I got yeah. two jobs here, right? I'm, I've, I'm leading the interview. I'm, I'm right taking notes. But sometimes I just get enveloped in the story. And John, what you were describing about the art form, what we do as addicts, in the garage, you're cracking two beers, put the bottle, the glass mm-hmm. in the glass recycling and they go inside and, and then you open a beer. It's okay. I'm cooking dinner. And that game, I got just like this knot in my stomach. Cause I went back to the game that I used to play. We just have this charade, right? And we're so good at hiding it mm-hmm. and it's exhausting. And John, like, 
I just forgot I was even doing an interview. I was so enveloped in that, and like there was pain inside my stomach, and and then I thought, I'm like, oh my oh. god, it's all it's all behind us. But we're so good, we're so crafty, and let's talk about the why for a minute here. And and you know, before I hit record, you mentioned you're starting to get to that point in your recovery where the drinking is but a symptom. You want to find out why you drink so much? Quit drinking, and you'll find out. Talk to me more about that. Nailed it. Nailed it. Well, when I quit drinking, I can't tell you, you know, because I, I, I joke that I don't even joke. I refuse to feel like a phony to anybody, let alone the recovery community, because October 2016 was when I finally just said, F this. I can't do it. I'm sick. I can't do it. And it is the old adage of sick and tired of being sick and tired. Like I, my guts were a mess. I was 250 pounds. I'm six feet tall and I'm a big guy and I lift a lot of weights, but I can't, you know, like at some point you just go, I'm too fat to feel good. Like my body hurts. And of course it was from alcohol and I knew it at that point. And I'm telling you when I sat up in bed that morning and told my wife, I'm done drinking. It was literally like the weight of the world was lifted from my shoulders. Well, then a couple of weeks later was Halloween and I'm at a Halloween party and I'm sipping a Red Bull and I was just telling people, nope, nope, I'm not, I'm not drinking tonight. I'm just playing. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm just going to quit for, I don't know, a while, maybe forever. I don't know. But I knew I can't drink. And one of the cool parts about my personality is I'm stubborn. So going back to that obsessive stuff, if I'm stubborn about something, no, I'm not stubborn about being wrong. If I'm wrong, dude, screw it. I'm wrong all sure. the time. I'm fine admitting I'm wrong. Sorry, I love you all. I'm wrong. Forgive me. And I'm, you know, I want the best data available to move forward. But you know, part of my journey was trying to tell fans that I've drank with my whole life, like, no, I'm good, man. I, I'm just going to drink Red Bulls. And I, I promise I don't need a drink tonight. And of course, I love to party. So I'm dressed up, whatever I'm dressed up. At, I don't honestly remember, but I dress up every Halloween and I dress up every July 4th in red, white, and blue. And I dress up every St. Patrick's Day in some sort of silly Irish dumb thing. You know, like I love to party, dude. I love people and I love smiling and I love singing and I love dancing. So telling people that, yeah, I'm not drinking was weird for me because I didn't have the toolkit to just say, oh, wow, I have an issue. Will you please help me not drink tonight? Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it was literally a year after that because like I told you, I went six months and thought, oh, okay, I can have a drink. Yeah. I had one drink and it kicked right back in. Well, part of that stubborn obsessiveness is, man, it's, it's, it's a superpower in this regard, but it was a detriment at times. When you tell yourself, dude, you don't need to drink. This is so stupid. Why are you doing this? You're an idiot. When you do the negative talk mm-hmm. and it shamed me, I shamed myself into not drinking for the rest of that trip, as opposed to actually stepping back and just saying, dude, you're a better person when you don't drink. It causes you anxiety. Why are you doing this? Yeah, we're already um, whole. Well, we don't need ethanol with a couple of additives to make it alcohol. John, you were hitting on some key points. I want to back it up and talk oh. about something huge in your journey. You said the weight of the world was lifted off your shoulders when you burned the ships and told your wife you woke up, had a moment of clarity. Talk to us a little bit more about that. The weight of the world was lifted off your shoulders when you told your wife you were done with it. Yes, and that is true of anything afflicting us. I don't mean to steer the conversation towards religion, but me coming to terms with religion and coming to terms with my loneliness in my own heart. You know, my wife and I are arguing about the dumbest things. We're so tired from having a child and sleepless nights. And I, once again, being stubborn, I'm the guy that gets up in the middle of the night. I change the baby. I bring baby to mama. Mama feeds baby. I take baby back. And then when baby's big enough to crawl out of the crib, we get the baby a big bed and I snuggle with baby until baby, you know, our, our oldest son's name is Finnegan. Mm-hmm. So I would snuggle with Finnegan two or three times a night in the middle of the night, every time he would get up. And so my sleep deprivation got worse and worse and worse. And I doubled down on what I knew, the religion that I was raised with. I was raised Episcopalian and started reading the Bible, which then led to more and more questions. And man, it, it was a, I was going through a religious whirlwind, you know, a typhoon of questioning the religion I was raised with, as well as loneliness, because this child, whom I love so much, has put this huge divide in between me and my wife. But of course, that's what my brain was telling me. The truth of it is, it's just two people trying to survive raising babies. Welcome to the real world, kid. <laughs> you know. So I, I, I promise I'm not trying to be preachy with this, because religion is such a sensitive talk, topic for people. But when I finally came to the fact, I don't believe this stuff, and I identified with the word atheist when I just said, I don't believe that there's an anthropomorphic creator of the universe. I all of a sudden had the energy to address my drinking. Like I had to address my religion and then address my drinking. And now I'm, I don't know if I'm unique in that re- 
that respect. But when I realized, okay, it's okay. It's okay not to believe this. And it's okay to just ask for data. Boom. Within a couple of weeks, I said, I'm done drinking. I mean, it was like, that was also a weight. Now, please don't think I'm using my religious struggles as an excuse to justify my drinking. Paul, I'm an alcoholic. I love a buzz. I love the sugar. I love the way music feels when you're drunk. I love dancing. I love smiling. I love jokes when I'm drunk. The, the ethanol is my issue, but I was using it to medicate all of these other things that if I would have been sober the whole time, I was religious questioning. I'd have probably had one-tenth the angst. I have a very loving family. My dad is all in for Jesus, and I've been able to talk to him openly about, you know, my questions, my, you know, atheism isn't a thing. It's just a non-belief in a God or a God. And so trying to explain to him where I was at, he's been so awesome. Like my dad is such an amazing friend. <laughs> so even though I can tell his heart's broken, like I have a lot of support in my life, yet I still drank. And you know what was cool about Recovery Elevator Podcast? And I don't mean to blow smoke in your face or anybody else's face, but everybody else that's out there struggling with addiction we aren't drunks underneath a bridge living in a cardboard box. We are people that have support systems and wives and husbands and grandparents who love us and friends at work who care for us and neighbors who give a damn, who will watch our dog. And you know, like we're all people that are just normal people trying to survive. There's just this one thing in us that I've texted you. I've called the unquenchable thirst. Mm -hmm. I've never heard anyone else call it that. Yeah. I mean, I call it the unquenchable thirst, but that's relatable to anything. Like you just, man, I want to go see every world cup soccer game. You know, man, I want to go, you know, I want to plant a, a 500,000 acre orchard. Well, why not just plant four or five trees? Yeah, but I want literally to take the whole state of Montana and turn it into an orchard. You know, like we just, it's all or nothing, you know? You, you kind of lobbed I, the Johnny Appleseed joke over the plate right there. You named, named John, but. Uh, <laughs> well, well played, sir. Well played. Let, let me comment on what you said about religion earlier. This is my two cents and I could sure. be way off base sure. here. So religion and spirituality, they're two totally different things. And I think that the thought you had about non-conforming with the religion upbringing of Episcopalian you had actually took you down a more spiritual pathway. And I don't, I'm a firm believer that I don't think you need religion to get sober, but spirituality, you kind of need that. And even though I have not been inside of a church in a long time, I have never been more spiritual in my entire life. So I think they're two different things. And I want to shift gears a little bit in this interview and say, I agree with you. And you say you are an authentic, transparent guy. You don't dibble dabble in fake conversations. You get right to the point. <laughs> you said something try, earlier yeah. in this podcast interview that I don't think anybody has ever said in 181 episodes. And I want to talk about this for a little bit because it's real. It's authentic. It's, it's, how you're feeling right now. And I've been there. You said you haven't had a drink for over a year, but you know, you look at a pint glass of alcohol and you just, you, you know, you want to throw up, but then the thought of getting drunk, that's what you want. Let's talk about that for a second. Cause that doesn't mean that you're anywhere behind anybody in recovery. Like you're being honest. And I bet a lot of people listening mm -hmm. right now are like, shit, this guy's he's brave. He's talking about this right now. Let's talk about that <laughs> a little bit more. Like seriously, nice job. Thank you. And I can tell you, that it took a long time before I was comfortable about it uh, to talk about my own, you know, like for instance, asking friends, help me not drink tonight. And then telling them like, you will find out who your real friends are because your real friends will be like, yeah, man, I got you iced tea, Red Bull, water. What can I get you? You know, cause we want to be hospitable to the people we love. Like if someone comes to your home, you don't just say, sit down, you filthy animal and don't, don't have something to eat. You know, like food and drink is such a big part of human culture. Well, when you tell people, help me not drink alcohol, that's the burning the ships. I didn't have that toolkit, you know, in my recovery. I didn't have that until literally recovery elevator. The whole, if I have one drink, it's all but impossible to stop drinking. Mm -hmm. And I only learned, yeah, a few months ago that like every single one of us apparently, and I was told this, I haven't looked it up with data, so take it for what it is, but it makes a lot of logical sense to me that everybody right now yeah, 0.001, of blood alcohol content anyway, just walking around, eating a diet, you know, there's just a little bit of ethanol in your, it just has no dopamogenic effect on your gray matter. But as soon as you have a couple drinks from a beer and it kicks that on, it kicks on a chemical craving that can't be turned off. And, you know, the guy was telling me, oh, they could show blood levels and this and that. And it was like, you know, of some chemical that your brain releases that wants more and more and more that creates these chemical cravings. 
I would love to look into it more just so I could be more educated about it instead of sound like a chucklehead talking on a podcast. But it was me. That's me. I have a drink and I, all I can think about is more drinking. <laughs> oh my God, I'm not alone. You know, I can tell you that on the microphone, I'm very private, but it's not out of shame. It's not out of fear. I'm very private on the microphone because we all go to concerts to forget our problems. Um, we all go to concerts to forget our demons, the, the arguments that we have with our wife over dandelions. You know, the fact that something broke in our house and we don't have the money to fix it yet or whatever. We go see entertainment to forget about our demons. And I'm not about to bring my demons up on the microphone. I avoid religion and politics on the microphone intentionally, but not because I'm a coward. I'm very opinionated about a lot of things, but it's because we're all an A-OK with somebody being a believer, and I'm okay with someone being a non-believer, and I'm okay with someone being a Trump supporter or a Hillary supporter or a Gary Johnson supporter or whatever. I like people. And when we're all together, there's something magical about forgetting our bullshit. Now, privately, I joke that I'm public. I'm an open book. I want to help people. I felt all alone. This woman that I'm crazy about, I love her so much. I love her so freaking much that I'm just being a dick to. I'm just a dick to her. Why am I a dick to my wife? Mm-hmm. And yeah, well, now looking back, yeah, this addiction stuff sucks. <laughs> and when you don't deal with it, it, you do let it, how do I say, dictate your behavior without conscious, how do I say this? Like without consciously thinking about our behavior, we fall into the subconscious, poor me, pity party. I deserve this. I want more of a buzz sort of attitude, which then reflects on how we do or don't meet the emotional needs of others. And so when you have your wife, whom you want to meet her emotional needs, but you're completely ignoring them because you just want to get drunk, that's a real source of shame for me. And so I'm very open privately about that because I want other people to know you're not alone. It's okay. You know, you're not alone and there's hope. And not just hope, but this amazing, amazing freedom. Paul, you'll appreciate this. And I hope that the listeners will appreciate this too. So I've been married, like I say, by the time this comes out, 11 years and most of it really happily married. And so I'm talking with a friend who's also in his 40s. And uh, this is a person that I love very much. In fact, my kids call him Uncle Barry, even though he's not blood. You know, I mean, it'd be like Uncle Paul, even though you and I aren't related. But, you know, Barry's telling me, yeah, man, I don't know. I just like my freedom. And, you know, because he had dated another gal for six months and they just kind of didn't work out. And he's never been married, no kids. And, you know, I just don't necessarily kind of want to be tied down. I just like my freedom. And I was looking at him smiling and I just told him, oh, Barry, dude, there is so much freedom in commitment, but you have to commit. You have to commit in your heart. Like, for instance, I committed to Ingrid finally, you know, after years of marriage even, but just 100% commit, I'm in. And it's amazing how freeing that is, like trying to tell Barry, dude, I don't worry about giving my phone number to girls at the end of the night or trying to take somebody home or, you know, what do I have to worry about being single? Like, there's so much commitment in being married and in drinking, when you commit to, to not drinking, oh my God, it's free. Like there's so much freedom in committing to not drinking. Like I don't worry about what I'm going to drink, how much money I'm going to spend. What do I have to change in my schedule tomorrow? Cause I know I'm going to be hungover. You know, how can I figure out childcare? Because I know I'm going to be too drunk to drive. You know, like, there's so much freedom in commitment, but you have to commit, not just like, yeah, I got married and that's nice. No, like commit to your marriage. Yeah, I don't drink. No, commit to your not drinking. I don't drink. And it is unbelievable the freedom that comes with that commitment. So I hope that resonates oh, it with does. some people. Yeah, but I'm also the obsessive, intense part of me. <laughs> it fits my personality to just, I'm all in, baby. So I'm not drinking. I'm all in. No problem. And it's hilarious that I'm actually cracking a LaCroix as I talk to you, which <laughs> I didn't know LaCroix existed till the Recovery Elevator podcast. Uh, the nectar of life. And John, I've got two more oh. questions before we hit the rapid sure. fire round. Before I hit record, you mentioned that recovery is not my identity. Talk to me more about that. Yeah, well, I was probably sober six months until I talked to my, you know, my best friend in the world is seven years sober. And he doesn't talk about it at all. But it's not that he's private about it. It's just that there's so much else going on in his life. He's going to school. He's got a kid. He's you know married. And our kids get along great. We're always going hiking. We're dog people. I know you're a dog person. So I say that because like quality time throwing tennis balls for retrievers and going on hikes with dogs. Like these are sources of joy in our lives for dog people. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, how did you quit drinking? Oh yeah, I was a mess. And then all of a sudden, boom, the floodgates open. I'm like, you, how come you never told me this? Well, you never asked and it's no big deal. 
and I drank all the time around him and he just never cared and never brought it up. And he's just so at peace with not drinking. And now that I'm here with alcohol, I don't worry about drinking. Like you could have, well, if you had a beer, it'd be like, Paul, dude, you know where this leads. Like, you know, you know what kind of life you want to live. But like, for instance, my wife last night had margaritas with friends, but she can have one and shut it off. Like, oh, don't you wish so badly you could have a beer and not obsess about having 50 more? <laughs> and of course she jokes and she said, John, do you want a margarita? And I told her, oh, sweetheart, no, I don't want one. I want 10. And you know that. And of course she laughs and I laugh and I go have a LaCroix. And, but it's true. I don't want one margarita. I want 10, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, obviously I appreciate your patience with how ADD my brain goes and how intense. No, John, but, you know, you, I mean, you're doing great. Yeah, you're doing great. And let me ask one more question before Thank the you. rapid fire round is how do you mm-hmm. plan on addressing the excess? We kind of discussed the addiction whack-a-mole before we hit the record. How do you plan on settling down and just planting five trees instead of 50,000 trees? I love it. Well, I am in the process of addiction whack-a-mole. Six months into no drinking, you know, I was a total train wreck and finally just said, screw it. I'm going to go get on Adderall. I know a friend who's ADD and it helps him tremendously. So I went and got a prescription to Adderall and all of a sudden I'm on Adderall and I can focus and all of the noise in my brain goes away. But the side effects of grinding your teeth and my insomnia got worse. (laughs) And then it was just finally my insomnia was so worse. I would wake up in the middle of the night and I just go to the gym because the gym is a 24 hour, you know, fitness center and it's a ghost town at 3 Mm a.m. I just go lift and then walk and watch Netflix till 6 a.m. Come home. Well, of course, I'm more and more tired. So then finally, screw it. I've never been a dope guy, a cannabis guy. I've never been a marijuana dude. And in October of last year, I went and got my green card and I just told the guy, I want something that makes me sleep. That's it. Well, of course, I use it to sleep until about, oh, February or March. And then I tried it for a gig. Oh, what the hell? I'll try it and see what it feels like to play music high. It's like, "Eh, okay, I like that. It's okay. Because the truth is, I really, really like playing music sober. And in fact, I think a lot of my sobriety comes from the fact that I still get a dopamine rush from performing, from singing, from playing guitar. And so I think that helps me a lot. However, now I've got cannabis in my life. And all of a sudden, I find myself, oh, it's six o'clock, seven o'clock. I'm brushed up into my pajamas. My kids are reading books. I'm going to go hit my vape pen. And all of a sudden, I take a look and I've been high 14 days in a row. And you know, right in front of my wife. But all of a sudden now I'm going to the bathroom and turning on the fan and I'm hiding the bottle. It just happens to be with a vape pen. Mm -hmm. Like, why am I ashamed that I want to buzz so badly? It's okay. There are a lot of people that want to buzz. It's the giving into it if it doesn't help your life. And right now, cannabis is completely manageable in my life. Paul, I've been down this road. I know where it leads. Alcohol worked to take away all of my anxiety and all of my depression and everything. Like, and I have depression, chemical depression. And for anybody out there with chemical depression, don't give up. I'm telling you, it has nothing to do with happiness. You can be happy, but you're sitting on your couch. just like, why can't I get off my couch? Why do all I want to do is just not move? Why can't, all right, just get in the shower. Just get, okay, one foot. Okay, one foot in the shower. Okay, like, and it's so real. Well, guess what? You have a beer and it goes away and you have all this energy and you can clean your house and you can make dinner and you can read to your kids. Life is awesome. And alcohol works until it doesn't. Until and when it does, it doesn't. And, and brother, you know well, and every single one of us in this recovery community know that it's so subtle. It is like all of a sudden you realize this hasn't worked for a long, long time. And I don't know when the day when it switched. I don't know the day when it switched. And right now with cannabis, it works. But I know it's coming, dude. I know it's coming. Like it's not going to work. I know me. I've met me. I've seen me operate. And, you know, like I've never, I hate tobacco with everything in my life everything. I, I just hate cigarettes. And my best friend who's seven years sober, he got sober on coffee and cigarettes. And so he'll step out for a cigarette break and I'll go out with him and I'll just think, God, I'd love a cigarette right now. What the hell's wrong with me? What's wrong with my brain? What is like, I don't want a cigarette. I hate cigarettes. Why do I want to, you know, addiction whack-a-mole. So I've quit doing Adderall completely. It does help me focus, but I don't need any more energy. As you can clearly tell from this phone call, I don't need any more <laughs> intensity in my life. I miss the focus, but I don't miss the, how much it affected my insomnia. And like, I'm not afraid of caffeine. I am afraid of alcohol. I'm terrified of it. I'm not afraid of Adderall, but I just, it's not working. Like Adderall worked for a few months and then it kind of stopped working and I could feel it. And (sighs) all right, well, where's the next magic pill? Yeah. And and And, John, I want to share a line from one of my favorite recovery books by Sarah Heppola called blackout. She talks about 
how in recovery, a lot of us are just downgrading addictions. And I know that happened for me as well. I got, I went on ADD meds slightly before I got sober, but then, you know, I was, I went from that to cigarettes. I had to quit that. And, um, yeah, I, I get it. And I'm still addressing the why and moving away from the addiction whack-a-mole. And John, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Let's do it, Paul. All right. Number one, John, what was your worst memory from drinking? My worst memory from drinking, I actually wrote this down, was arguing with my wife in the car. We weren't even married. We were just at the brewery having a few beers. And she told me, dude, why are you drinking so much? I'm like, I'm not drinking so much. And then, of course, on the drive home, buzzed. And we were arguing. And I can't even tell you what the argument was about. But all of a sudden, this girl that I know I'm going to marry, I'm going to love her forever, is bawling in the car. And I honestly can't tell you why. And even then, I was like, why is she crying? Why are we arguing? What is what is wrong with this picture? And that was when I realized, God, this drinking stuff. Dude, that was 15 years ago. I mean, it's been an issue for a while. And I know that doesn't sound like a, I was drunk in Vegas and woke up naked in a hallway or something like that. But it was awful. Like the emotional pit in my stomach, this beautiful human being that I know is just one of the most magical people I've ever met mm. is sitting here bawling because I'm drunk and stubbornly arguing about something that doesn't matter. So... Thanks for listening to that. Yeah. It's my worst memory. I've, I've got a lot of them, but that's at the top, dude. No, thanks for sharing. And, and John, next question. What are some of your favorite resources in recovery? Obviously, the Recovery Elevator podcast. Thank you. But my favorite, yeah, and thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you out there who have shared your story. Just keep going, friends. Keep going. Uh, I need it. I need you to share your story. I need to hear that I'm not alone. But my favorite recovery resource is definitely my best friend, Jeff. Like, he just, he is such a rock. And that old line connection is the opposite of addiction. It is so true. Whenever I'm freaked and I just make a phone call or I reach out to somebody, just a text message, it is amazing when you feel connected to people, how much you don't want to get high or don't want, in my case, just be bold, boldly trashed, you know? So people, people is my favorite resource. John, <laughs> I don't think I've ever in that question, I don't think anybody's individually called out a name. And one of my favorite resources in recovery is my buddy, Nate, mm -hmm. who I interviewed in episode seven. I love that. The opposite of addiction is connection. Just like you said, when I'm hanging out with my buddy, Nate, we're on a road trip, the thought of a drink, it's like the least last thing I want to do. And next question, John, Absolutely. in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Probably from Jeff to use the obsessive part of addiction as a superpower. And we see it a lot when addicts who get sober or drug addicts who get clean start to become long distance runners or people that decide that they're going to learn piano or people learn that they're going to learn, decide that they're going to learn Italian. So for instance, it's not just about learning a new language or something, but it's about using the obsessive part of your addiction as a superpower to create something productive that you can produce something from. And so for me, the addict part of me that keeps going to the gym. That's the only reason I'm not 500 pounds of how much food I love to eat. The addictive part of me that just loves to play guitar. But dude, I get to make music and make people's lives better with this music stuff. So use your, use the obsessive part of your personality as a superpower. John, this all goes back to enhanced and, dopamine receptors, which in oh yeah, dude, this plays a role in evolution. Like this worked in our favor, just like you said, we can leverage this superpower genetic trait that we've been given towards learning a new language, like you said, guitar, art, whatever the f we want. And before we go, John, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or are thinking about quitting drinking? For sure, ask for help. And if it needs to be private at first, ask for private help. Um, email a stranger in the recovery elevator community. Ask somebody that you know that might be sober. Like literally, I was into sobriety over six, seven months before I even knew what AA was. I mean, I culturally knew what AA was. Hi, I'm Bill. I'm an alcoholic. I'm Joe. I'm an alcoholic. But I did not know that it was actually a community of people trying to help each other and all suffering from the same unquenchable thirst. I have not done AA uh, not because I'm anti or pro AA, I'm really pro anything that helps people feel like they're a part of a tribe, anything that helps you commit. You know, I love churches for that reason, even though I'm not religious, I love that people come together to make each other's lives better. So ask for help. And once you feel comfortable, start asking the people you're closest to, hey, I don't want to drink anymore. Please help me not drink. And use those words. And don't be ashamed of them. Don't be ashamed of the fact that, yeah, when I have one, I can't stop. I just want to drink more and more. And I don't like who I am when I'm drunk and hung over all the time. I don't like it. It doesn't add value to my life. Ask for help. 
sorry, this is way more than 30 seconds, but it's so important to me. God, I just was too chicken shit to ask for help. I was so chicken, Paul. Oh, I'm, and I'm sure every addict, God, we've lost so much time, but ask for help, friends. Ask, because it's there. God, there's so many beautiful people that want to help you. I want to help you. I want to help you so badly. So just ask for help, man. And You're it, not alone. And I, I love how you change the verbiage in those scenarios from, no, I'll have a Red Bull. I'll take an iced tea to, no, I'd love your help for you helping me not to drink. They want you to succeed. And John, before we depart, give yeah. listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic gift line. <laughs> for how much humor I love in my life, this is just a very pragmatic, functional thing. And I want people to recognize this behavior. If you play hide the bottle, if you play hide the bottle with your drinking, you might be an alcoholic. It's just true. If you're drinking privately, understand that that's not normal. And guess what? That's okay. There are a lot of people that do it, but there's freedom from it. Just ask. So, okay. I know that's pragmatic and I should have thought of something funnier, but I just want to help people, Paul. So desperately, dude. Oh, and I've been done you know, just that today. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so dude, much for you. joining us, John. Thank you for much, Derf. Thank you for your time, and thanks everybody out there for being awesome. Keep crushing, guys. Cheers. I'd like to say congratulations to Chantel, who just hit two months of sobriety, and she also sent me some great You Might Be an Alcoholic If lines. Here we go. You might be an alcoholic if you get up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom and you decide your girlfriend's shoes make a better toilet. You might be an alcoholic if you have black carpet runners all over your carpet to cover up the red wine spills. You might be an alcoholic if you believe your red face, high blood pressure, headaches, stomach ulcers, vertigo spells, memory loss are all symptoms completely unrelated to your alcohol intake. Thanks for sharing that with us, Chantel. Congrats on two months of sobriety. Chantel, your one day has already come. Your passage has already started. And thanks for allowing us to be part of it. Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. It's time to mend our lives. We can do this. We can do this.